Okay, everybody, will please unmute yourselves. I want to um, speak today about the notion of legacy, since in the last week there's been an outpouring of wonderful eulogies for Lord Jonathan Sachs, and I was thinking about that over Shabbat, and I really found a resonance in uh, the uh, opportune uh, pasuk that I'm going to share with you on my screen, if you will allow me. And if you can see this, the beginning of our parsha, Vatoma Soro Bekiriat Arba, Sarah dies, he Hebron Be'eretz Canaan. So we know the location where she died. Now let's look at the actors. Vayovo Avraham, so Abraham, her husband, came, Lispod Lesara Belivkota. To give a hespit, to give a eulogy, to eulogize her and to mourn her, to cry for her. Now, the Balaturim, you can see on the left side, what does it mean, the Livkota? He notes something very strange, Kafktana. Do you see over here the word the Livkota? The Kaf is small. Why? Why is that? What is there about the crying and the mourning that is diminished? Obviously, uh, the Torah, the Masorah, the Masoret text is pointing us to a particular uh, problem with the text. And you can see that the cough is small. And he comes out with this most outrageous claim. It is a cough katana. Yeah, he came to eulogize her. Very nice, you know. Litvaks love eulogies. They go to all these Gedolim eulogies because you get a lot of Torah there from, from the Hespadim, right? They love Hespadim. And, and so he gave a, an amazing Hesperd, yes. But when it came to the emotional response, the Balaturim suggests, Shelo Bacha Elomaat. And there was not that much of a pain at her loss. Wow. This is, these are, we're talking about the patriarchs here. We're not talking about Joe Schmo. And, and to suggest somehow that the small cuff represents a diminishing in his emotional response. And he gives us two reasons. Number one, Lefi sheds a cane hoyser. Okay, very nice. She was old. What does that mean? Her death was not expected. So he didn't cry too much. You know, when people get old, you expect there is an expectation, which I'll come back to later, about the end, the ending. And so he didn't cry too much because she was old. Then he gives, and that's understandable, it's very rational, but then he gives something much more dark. Inami, the Balaturim suggests, Shehoyso kamo goremet mitata. Wow. It's as if she complained about Abraham and therefore somehow she, well, she caused her own death. Why? She mustered him. Because she mustered him. She complained. And if you complain, and I'll just bring you that medrash, she was punished first. 
And if you cause that yourself, it's like suicide, and they must beat him over a suicide. He brings a, a very halachic uh, 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 piece from Yoradea 242. That you don't bury him in the right place. You don't must beat him. You, you know. What is what are we talking about? That she somehow was goremet mitata? Did you ever hear such a thing? That Sarah in fact caused her own death at some level? And we have to go back to Lechlecha when she first says to Abraham, okay, Tikin Hagar, maybe you will be built up through her and we'll have a legacy. And then the kid is born, and as he's pregnant, Hagar is taunting uh, Sarah's friends that she's, she's old, she'll never have a child. And now Sarah comes back to Avraham, and he, she does a complete 180, and says the word, My injustice is upon you, meaning you are responsible for my infertility. Why? So the Mishra says, Rabbi Yudin B'Shem Rabbi Yehuda Bar Simon, you are stealing from me through the words you failed to say on my behalf. Sarah is now going back to Abraham's dialogue with God, in which he says to God that I am bereft of a children. You promised me, but I'm bereft. Two men are in jail. He was passing. Take my course of my injustice, please. Amar Apku. And the king said, okay, release him from jail. It was an unjust imprisonment. Okay. Afterwards, the felon said, I have a grievance against you that needs redressing. Why? Because you said to the king, me, 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 me. Didi, didi. Had you said our injustice, he would have released both of us. So too, when Avraham said, We go childless. He would have given you a son and me a son. But because you said, I myself am childless. You got a child through Hagar, and I didn't. This is the Messira. This is Sarah taking Avram Avinu to task, to court. Now, the, the Gemara in Bava Kama 93, and the Balaturim assumes you know that Gemara, that since you complain, that means that you are taking up a litigation in the courts. Be very careful because me being against someone else, the first thing the courts are going to say, are you a clean witness yourself? They're going to investigate you. They're going to do a background check on you. Who's bringing this? Who is the What is your background? What are your qualifications to make such an outrageous statement? And if you are not... If the danger comes back to haunt you, then you yourself can be Nimsara Ladin. So it's better not to take people to court because it opens up a can of worms. That's what the Gemara and Bovakama. So that helps resolve the point that many Mephoshim struggle with. 
We're given every nitty-gritty detail of the negotiations involved in the purchase of the Marat HaMachpelah. As it says, Vayokam Avraham Me'al Al And now he goes to Penechet and he goes to a bargaining and he has to buy a property, blah, blah, blah. But where is the Hesped? We just got through saying, Vayokam Avraham Me'al Pnei Meso. Wait a minute. You just got through saying... Okay, I understand. You couldn't cry too much, whatever reasons. Where on earth is the Hesped? And so Tachuma says, I'll fill in the blank. You know what the Hesped is? It's Aisha's Chayel. That last chapter of Proverbs, which we say on Friday night, the Aisha's Chayel is the Hesped Avram gave for Sarah. But Ikechosem in Asifah, that is in the text, the Avo Avram Lispod, Means he keeps a hesper. Did he say one? And according to the Arturim, he may not have said it. He may not have cried so much, and he may not have said the hesper. And I would like to, therefore, spend the rest of our time together to maybe understand why. Now, Vayokom Be'el Pemeso, the word Vayokom, according to Rashi and other places, the Natsiv, is a lot of Zedas. He hurried up. He ran away from the Hesped. He ran away from the funeral. Why? Because a very interesting word, if you can see right here, me'al penei meso. Meso suggests a problem in the grammar. It should have been either mesa from her death or mesaso, but not meso. That would suggest he's getting up from his own death. And, and the Medrash pipes in. Absolutely he did. He did because the Malachamovist started to chepper him. The Malachamovist started to taunt him and say, you know, you had something to do with her death. And the Gemara says that if you must be too much, then you will cause someone else's death, meaning your own. So he gets up very quickly um, in order to avoid dealing with the Malachamovist or his conscience or whatever you want to metaphorize that. Now, Shlomo said something very interesting that triggered me. He said, everybody knows that there is a Torah's Avraham and a Torah's Ara. The Torah's Avraham, the Torah that Avraham bequeathed through Yitzhak and Yaakov and the male lineage, we all have. That's Torah Shebirsav. Where's the Torah's Sara Imenu? Now, whenever Shlomo would say, everybody knows, you know, <laughs> the biggest Chiddush is coming right your way. And in, it, it turns out that... Shlomo says that the Torah of Sarah Imenu is the hidden Torah. That's the small cuff, I would like to suggest, that Avram didn't uh, appreciate. The small cuff, the hidden Torah. That there is this wonderfully enigmatic medrash that is brought in the Gemara and in both in Esther Rabbah and in Breshit Baba. And that is the connection between Esther and Sarah. Rabbi Akiva Hoyo Yoshe Vedorosh Venit Namnu Atalmidim. Rabbi Akiva was sitting and being doirish, who's giving a lecture, and people started falling asleep. What did he do? He wanted to wake them up. So he used to wake them up. And what did he say? He said, What did Esther do to acquire the 170... Districts of, of, of What did she do? So, what did she do? She said, Kach Amar Tavo Esther, 
Bitashel Sarah, that as the descendant of Sarah, let her come. She, who lived for 127 years, as I can share my screen again, and she lived for 127 years, let her come and give her Timloch to her merit. She shall pay over 127 Medinas. He did that to awaken the people, the students, Rabbi Akiva's students from their summer. It's a very, very weird medrash, and a lot of people have, from the Chidush Arim, the Chassam Sofa, I'm not going to rehearse that, what was he doing by connecting the two? What's of interest, of course, is the number 127. Of course, here's 127 and here's 127. So Rabbi Akiva puts the two together. Question, of course, is why would that wake them up? What is it that connects Esther and Sarah Imenu? And is there a real connection? Because one is Medinos, geography, place, 127 states of the realm, and the other is 127 years. So let's just focus in on that. They were sleeping. I, I have to tell you, the Blue Shiva Rebbe, Rabbi Yisrael Spira, had a beautiful vote. He says that he, too, wondered the connection between the 127 years of Sarah and the 127 countries that Esther ruled. I mean, did Sarah sleep? It's not like she was awake the whole time. And so Rabbi Akiva saw that the connection was, in a very Hasidish way, that an appropriate amount of sleep is also part of Avodas Imenu. Sarah's sleeping was included in the 127 years because it was part of her Avodas Hashem. And Rabbi Akiva was giving Musa to his students. When you're sleeping, you're tuned out. That's not a part of your Avodah Hashem. And therefore, he was teaching them that the sleep can also be part of Avodah Hashem, and that rather than dozing, does nothing for a person, at least engage in a deeper form. I thought that was really cute. But let's look more closely. I wanted to read from the... the the Soloveitchik, who is quoted by uh, Rabbi Foreman in a beautiful way. And what he's going to try to suggest is that Sarah was her legacy passed down to Esther in a unique way. What is, what is Rabbi Akiva trying to teach us through this enigmatic medrash? What is the riddle about Sarah and Esther? And Rabbi Soloveitchik was a master of psychology and understanding human behavior and trying to correlate it in his majestic shiurim from the 50s, 60s, and 70s that I was privileged to, to participate in as a, as a student in Boston. What does it mean to be human? It means for Soloveitchik passing through the stages of life. Remember, we're told that she lived a hundred and twenty and seven. This was the way the Torah fragmentized, of course, that was she, that's the way it did it grammatically, but the Medrash tells us, and Rashi quotes the Tanfuma, that the hundred years were like the twenty, and the twenty were like the seven. We talked about this a couple of years ago, the Noi Meli But what Soloveitchik is says that each of those are three stages of life, each unique. The earliest youth is a time of innocence, exuberance, and curiosity. 
We discover ourselves in the world. Okay. And then the next level in adolescence, we develop different priorities. Uh, we prize for Soloveitchik mostly the notion of independence. Who am I? I'm not just the product of my parents. How will I be from them and from my teachers? And then lastly, later in life, still different goals and values emerge. I'd like to settle down, get married, need a job. What should I do about my career? And finally, adult gives ways to middle age, gives ways to our sunset years, each other with new priorities and new ways of looking at our lives. And as you progress, you accrue responsibilities, you attain a bit of wisdom, you still don't leave your teenage passion for independence behind, you take it with you. You don't leave your child's innocence and exuberance behind. You take all that with you. And all those old qualities inform your newfounded wisdom in middle age, leavening it. So you're an adult, you pay your bills on time, you've been around the block, you're smart enough to smell a scam. <laughs> you're able to pause sometimes and examine a ladybug perched on a blade of grass. And you can overcome with one sunset. And occasionally you put kids to bed and they're fighting, but you get swept up in a wild pillow fight with your kids, their side and yours. And you forget if only for a moment it's past their bedtime. And now you progress to the later stage of life. As the end of life begins to twinkle ever so vaguely on the horizon, you begin to consider your legacy. What lasting impact might I have, even in a small way, in that world of ours? And instead of experiencing that question solely as a crisis, which is the way I do, and instead of distracting yourself from that crisis by either buying a shiny red Porsche or running off with the secretary or emptying the bank account or becoming Hasidish, you surprise yourself by finding some courage and optimism to will to directly confront the question. How do you do that? You recall the reservoirs of innocence, exuberance and curiosity from your childhood. You call on the wisdom and the life experience and the clarity of principle that you earned when you and your wife struggled with this halacha or how to educate the kids or which school to send the kids or how to deal with your in-laws. You bring all your earlier selves with you as you confront this new challenge. And as you make your way towards the last stage of life, when the prospect of death starts to become more real, and that growing awareness of light end doesn't leave you feeling empty inside or, like me, panicky inside. The fear of that inevitable end doesn't become your sole obsessive focus. Why? Because for a moment, the way you've lived your life has prepared you to leave your life. You've lived without leaving your earlier selves behind. And I think that is the message that Sarah is giving Esther. And maybe that gives you the confidence to see death itself as just another stage that will give way to that ultimate stage whose mystery you have to ready yourself in your entirety to embrace. Paradoxically, Esther, when she's walking through that hallway to the bedroom, we know that the Shekhinah was with her, Vatilbash Esther Malchus. But as she walks through that parade of Avodah Zorah on the way to Achashverosh's bedroom, 
confidence that God was with her, even though she was uh, uh, violating the halacha, the Shekhinah left her because of the Avodah And now she was left on her own, confronting her own mortality. When you confront death that way, you feel more able to surrender your life when that day finally arrives. And I think that that's the hidden nature that Esther is receiving from Sarah Imenu. It is the hidden Torah that Sarah bequeaths to Esther. And maybe that's the paradox I'd like to suggest that Rabbi Akiva was getting at when he was talking about the paradox of Sarah's years versus Esther's Medinos. Sarah's years were the time she spent living her seven years, 20 years, and 100 years. Those stages of development that she never gave up on as she confronted the ultimate surrender. And that was the inspiration for Esther to face her mystery, her death, despite everything, because she had to save the Jewish people. And that notion to see your life in a framework of time alone or space alone. I was geographically here, I lived here, and I lived here. That's the Torah of Avraham. The Torah of Sarah, the hidden Torah that Schleimer was mentioning, is the Torah of time. How do I negotiate my space in this world, my geography, my plot, my location in space? with my people, with my society, with where I am right now? And how do I negotiate the paradox of that with the paradox of time? Remember, it was Rabbi Akiva, who the Arba Nichnas Lepardes, the four that entered the supernal worlds of the mysteries of Torah, of the hidden Torah of Sora Imenu, and because he understood the paradox. He told Acher, when you go upstairs and you see Mayim Mayim, you see the upper worlds and the lower worlds, don't say Mayim Mayim. It looks like there's a split between this world and the next, between time and space, between divine and human. Don't say that. That's an illusion because of your humanity. So he's gone there and he's come back and he's telling us the Torah of Sora Imenu, the Torah of time. And maybe that hidden Torah is the small cuff that Avraham did not understand and therefore could not be muspid and could not cry because he failed to understand the hidden Torah of Sora Imenu. And that small cuff would stay small and only bloom in Esther, the hidden queen, the, the woman who worked through her charms in a hidden way behind closed doors in the bedroom to save Am Yisrael, to save herself. And it's there that God works his providence in the dark spaces. And I think that's the message of the small cuff of Liv Kotar. The crying that we must do for ourselves has to have a small cuff. It has to be prepared for our eventual demise. And what is our legacy? Our legacy is precisely that which is in the hidden spaces which we leave to our children. I want to end with Simon Weil, who was born Jewish, 
uh, became a Mishumad, but became one of the greatest heretical Catholic philosophers of the 20th century. And I think she chapped it. There are others who've said that there are deep connections, maybe unconscious, between her and Kabbalah. But I think I want to quote and end with her statement. This notion of the hiddenness of the divine is not something we ourselves can bring about. It requires God's movement towards us, or in other words, grace. Oilam chesed The world is based on grace, not in the esoteric men- exoteric mention that God loves the world and he wants it. That's very good. But olam chesed is in the tra- intransitive tense. It has to be based. My life has to be based on this openness to divine grace. For a while, this meant that waiting was an essential element in the ascent of the soul towards God. It's an unbelievable discipline, this idea that time and waiting will slowly percolate up for you, that the wisdom will come. It's not on the blot in Gomorrah. You have to dig deep so that it comes to you. She held that God is already waiting for us. What a chiddush. Such that we merely need to turn around. La shuv. That's Rav Cook's notion of tshuva, to turn around and face him. At the same town, at the same town, our inability to do so, this on our own, means we too have to wait. That is, and here's the punchline that grabbed me when it came to this idea of Rabbi Akiva and the paradox between time and space. Wait for God to transverse the infinite distance of time and space which separates us from himself. It is this element of waiting which gives Wilde's thought this eschatological character, uh, this notion of the eschaton, this idea that humanity is progressing in a positive way to the eschaton, to the end. I don't share that with her. I live in a dark post-Holocaust world. But I love this concept of time and space that Rabbi Akiva gave to us this riddle to wake up his students, wake them up, of course, now having heard all this, wake up themselves from themselves, to open themselves to their childhood, to that inner child, to that innocence, to that expectancy, and that should inform them of their legacy. Have a wonderful week. Have a blessed week.